the Slaughter in May podcast. Welcome to the January 2021 edition of our Tax News Highlights podcast. I am Zoe Andrews, PSL Counsel and Head of Tax Knowledge. And I'm Tanya Felling, Senior Professional Support Lawyer in the Tax Department. Just when we were getting ready for a quiet Christmas and New Year following our last podcast in December 2020 to round off the year, there was a veritable flood of developments. So this podcast will be a bit of a canter through important Brexit-related changes, updates on previously mentioned national and international developments and UK cases. This podcast was recorded on the 12th of January 2021 and reflects the law and guidance on that date. So, starting with Brexit, we had something of a last-minute Christmas present in the form of the EU-UK Trade and Cooperation Agreement, which was finally agreed on Christmas Eve. The agreement generally contains very little tax content. It does contain, however, restrictions on the custom duties, export duties and taxes which may be imposed on goods, and there are protocols which provide for cooperation on customs matters and combating VAT fraud and for mutual assistance for the recovery of claims relating to taxes and duties. The UK and the EU have committed to retaining the corporate interest limitation, controlled foreign companies' rules and hybrid mismatches, in each case to the extent necessary to meet OECD standards. In the area of state aid, the UK no longer applies EU state aid rules, except as provided for in the Northern Ireland Protocol to the EU-UK Withdrawal Agreement, but is required to set up its own subsidy control regime with an appropriate role for an independent authority and recourse through UK courts by interested parties such as competitors. At the time of recording, no further details are available on how the UK intends to meet these obligations, but the provisions on competition in the agreement to ensure a level playing field include restrictions on tax state aid measures. If the UK was to introduce subsidies, which the EU considers to fall foul of these restrictions, the agreement envisages that the EU would be able to request an explanation from the UK. Thereafter, the matter could be referred to the snappily named Trade Specialised Committee on the Level Playing Field for Open and Fair Competition and Sustainable Development. This is a committee of the Partnership Council established pursuant to the agreement as a joint UK-EU institution to oversee the attainment of the objectives of the agreement. In more serious cases, the EU would be able to unilaterally take appropriate remedial measures if discussions with the UK do not yield a solution. That the UK and the EU have committed to following global standards rather than the UK being forced to follow EU rules, is significant. This gives scope for the UK to deviate from EU tax rules to the extent that they have gone above and beyond OECD standards, which has often been the case. Not least in respect of DAC 6, the EU's mandatory disclosure rules in respect of cross-border tax planning arrangements. Indeed, Zoe. Just before the end of the transition period, the UK pared back its implementation of DAC 6 to the standards agreed at the OECD level. In practice, this means that DAC 6 reporting has been abolished in the UK for the majority of cases. Under the UK's DAC 6 implementing regulations, only arrangements falling within DAC 6 hallmarks D1 or D2 are now reportable. 
the hallmarks correspond to the requirements of the OECD's modern mandatory disclosure rules for common reporting standard avoidance arrangements and opaque offshore structures. This means that they cover, broadly speaking, arrangements involving attempts to conceal income or assets or to obscure beneficial ownership. In fact, the UK intends to replace the paired-back DAC6 implementing regulations with its own mandatory disclosure rules based on the OECD's model rules. We understand that draft legislation should be published later this year, but that reporting under the new rules would be unlikely to commence before 2022. The UK's decision to pair back DAC 6 was certainly a welcome Brexit consequence, even though it came after most businesses would have already incurred significant compliance costs. Another welcome change will be that banks and insurers will now be able to recover input VAT in respect of costs associated with the provision of specified supplies of financial and insurance services to EU customers. As promised, the UK has also reduced the rate of VAT applicable to women's sanitary products to zero. In terms of withholding tax, intergroup dividend, interest and royalty payments to the UK may become more expensive as the interest and royalties directive and the parent subsidiary directive no longer apply and not all relevant treaties eliminate applicable withholding taxes in full. But we expect that most relevant intra-group payments would already have been restructured to avoid additional tax costs and payments from the UK will for now remain unaffected as the UK legislation implementing the two directives has been left in place unamended. In any event, in the case of UK dividends, there is generally no withholding tax. Mm, what will be really interesting will be to see how the UK's rules may be amended in the future to deviate from those applicable in the EU. In this respect, it is worth noting that more UK courts than originally envisaged have been empowered to depart from EU case law. In addition to the UK Supreme Court, this power has been granted to the Court of Appeal in England and Wales, and certain equivalent courts in Scotland and Northern Ireland. But let's now move on to further news on some other national and international developments which we had previously mentioned. The OECD has finally published guidance on the transfer pricing implications of COVID-19. The UK government's proposal to give HMRC, the UK's tax authority, additional information powers has been criticised by the Economic Affairs Committee of the House of Lords. And we understand that HMRC intends to withdraw guidance issued in September 2020 on the VAT treatment of early termination fees and compensation payments. The long-awaited OECD guidance on the transfer pricing implications of COVID-19 gives a clear message. The arm's length principle and the OECD transfer pricing guidelines 2017 are fit for purpose in dealing with the transfer pricing implications of COVID-19 and there is no need to adopt a different approach. In a recent post on the European Tax Blog, our colleagues Dominic Robertson and Diksha Rathi have highlighted key points. Where a business's internal data indicates that, because of the impact of COVID-19, historic comparables are no longer appropriate, tax authorities should take a flexible and pragmatic approach, provided taxpayers are making good faith efforts to obtain contemporaneous data as quickly as possible. Tax authorities should carefully scrutinise claims seeking to allocate a share of group-wide losses to limited risk entities and businesses should be aware 
that the corollary would likely be allocating a higher return for those entities in future good times. Government assistance may, depending on its terms and conditions, be relevant to the transfer pricing analysis. In particular, if the assistance takes the form of a wage subsidy, a government debt guarantee or short-term liquidity support. Existing advanced pricing agreements, APAs for short, should not be affected by COVID-19 unless, for example, COVID-19 has resulted in the breach of a critical assumption leading to the cancellation or revision of the APA. In an earlier podcast, we spoke about the UK government's proposal to introduce a financial institution notice, FIN for short, to make it quicker and easier for HMRC to request information from financial institutions on taxpayers' affairs. Quicker and easier because, as proposed, the FIN would do away with the requirement to obtain tribunal approval before the notice is issued. The main reason given for the proposal was the pressure to fulfill information requests from other tax authorities in a timely manner. The House of Lords Economic Affairs Committee has published a report which gives short shrift to this proposal and the reasons given for it. The majority of third-party information requests issued under the current rules, which require prior tribunal approval, relate to domestic matters. And delays are not solely attributable to the tribunal approval requirement. Therefore, the main reason given for the proposal is not apt to justify it. The report also considered certain other recent proposals, including proposals to require businesses to notify HMRC of uncertain tax positions and to make certain licenses conditional on tax registrations. In general, the report was less than complementary on the government's recent tax policy-making track record. In particular, the report calls on the government to be more methodical and rigorous in consulting on proposals so as to ensure that plans are properly tested and supported by a strong and transparent evidence base. We sincerely hope that the government will act on this recommendation to afford businesses and the advisory community earlier and more extensive opportunities to input into the shaping and realization of policy proposals. There has been some good news on VAT You may recall that we previously discussed Revenue and Customs Brief 12 2020 back in September when it was published. The brief explained HMRC's change in policy on the VAT treatment of early termination fees and compensation payments. HMRC has now confirmed to the Joint VAT Consultative Committee that the brief will be withdrawn and a revised brief issued. We understand that the new brief will set out a more nuanced approach and that HMRC's change policy will not now have retroactive effect, but will instead apply from 1st of February 2021. I expect that we will update you on the revised brief when it has been published. But now onto a brief update on four cases. The Court of Appeal decision in development securities on corporate tax residents, and the upper tribunal decisions in Gallagher on exit taxes, Stephen Warshaw on the definition of ordinary share capital, and Empiricos on partial closure notices. The decision of the Court of Appeal in Development Securities was at the same time reassuring and disappointing. The case concerned a scheme to enable the Development Securities Group to access enhanced latent capital losses. In order for the scheme to work, it was crucial that three special purpose vehicles incorporated in Jersey were also tax resident there at the time when they acquired assets at a price significantly above market value. 
The first-tier tribunal had decided that the SPVs were UK tax resident at the relevant time. The SPV's directors had not engaged with the substantive decisions to enter into the transactions, but acted on instructions from the UK parent. On appeal, the upper tribunal overturned this decision, and the Court of Appeal has now overturned the upper tribunal's decision. The narrow question before the Court of Appeal was whether the upper tribunal's criticism of the first-tier tribunal's decision had been well-founded. All three judges agreed that the answer was no. Because the taxpayer had not put in a respondent's notice, it was not open to the Court of Appeal to uphold the upper tribunal's de decision on any other grounds once it found the reasons for the decision to have been not well-founded. Which brings me to the disappointing part. One of the judges in the Court of Appeal went on to resoundingly criticize the first-tier tribunal's decision on different grounds. But another considered that the first-tier tribunal had got it right. And the third declined to comment. So where does this leave us? Well, we still don't really know whether the first-tier tribunal got the residence question right or not in this case. But, and now comes the reassuring part, this should not matter all that much. The Court of Appeal decision does mean that there has been no change of principle since the 2006 decision in Wooden Holden. Whatever the differing views on residence expressed in this case, it is clear that this is an extreme case which turns on its extreme facts and should be limited to similar scenarios. In practice, there should be no read across to special purpose vehicles which enter into transactions which make commercial sense for them. But now on to Gallagher. We mentioned this in our December podcast in the context of noting Penayi as a case to look out for in 2021. Differently constituted first-tier tribunals reached opposing conclusions in Gallagher and Penayi on whether or not it was possible to interpret legislative provisions on exit taxes so as to make them compatible with EU law. In Gallagher, the answer was no, that could not be done. But in Penayi, the answer was yes. There were two key issues in Gallagher. First, whether the imposition of an immediate tax charge on intergroup transfers when the assets left the UK tax net was contrary to EU law. The first tier tribunal considered that this was clearly the case. And secondly, and this is where Penayi and Gallagher part company, what the appropriate remedy would be. The first tier tribunal decided that the remedy would be to disapply the charge, rather than, as was done in Penayi, to read an instalment payment regime into the legislation. In economic terms, this application of the charge, as per Gallagher, is a real win for the taxpayer, whereas any requirement to pay by instalments, especially if interest is to be charged for the deferral, puts the taxpayer in a worse economic position. The Upper Tribunal has now referred questions on both issues to the Court of Justice of the European Union, in what must have been one of the last such referrals from the UK. It is hard to see that the CJU would follow Gallagher in full and confirm that the charge is contrary to EU law and must be disapplied. Nonetheless, its answers to the questions referred are likely to have an impact beyond the facts of this case and Penayi. They could be particularly relevant to anyone who has moved assets to an EU27 country as part of Brexit planning. The answers may also inform the interpretation of the provisions in Finance Act 2020, which introduce an instalment payment regime for tax payable on intergroup asset transfers to companies resident in the EEA. In Stephen Warshaw, the Upper Tribunal has given a very clear decision 
on the bright line definition of ordinary share capital in section 989 Income Tax Act 2007. The upper tribunal dismissed HMRC's appeal and concluded the first tier tribunal had made the right decision that the cumulative compounding preference shares held by Mr Walshaw were ordinary share capital and that the company was his personal company for the purposes of entrepreneurs relief which has now been renamed business assets disposal relief. Section 989 is necessarily formalistic and looks at the rights attached to the share, not the subjective intentions of the parties as to its tax status or what happens in practice. The upper tribunal did not accept HMRC's proposition that the statutory distinction between a share which is ordinary share capital and one which is a fixed rate preference share should be based or even informed by whether in economic terms it is debt-like. Following these principles, the upper tribunal concluded that in order to have a right to a dividend at a fixed rate, both the rate and the amount to which it is applied must be fixed. The effect of the compounding was that the amount to which the rate was applied was not fixed. The upper tribunal sees no principal basis for a distinction between a dividend expressed as a fixed percentage of profits and the dividend on the preference shares in this case, which had a right to compounding. Although the case is about entrepreneurs' relief, the term ordinary share capital is also relevant to other parts of the legislation, such as group relief, consortium relief and stamp duty group relief. It's a good reminder that this is an area where the devil is very much in the detail. The upper tribunal decision in Embiricos limits taxpayers' ability to force HMRC to bring inquiries to a close. In the Embiricos case, HMRC had concluded that the taxpayer, who is an individual, was domiciled in the UK and had requested further information on the income and gains which would consequently become taxable. The taxpayer wanted to have the domicile question settled in court before providing this information due to the costs involved. So the tribunal was asked to direct HMRC to issue a partial closure notice stating its conclusion on the domicile question which could then be appealed. The upper tribunal has now clarified that the partial closure notice cannot be issued merely to state a conclusion on a preliminary legal matter. It must also state the amount of additional tax due. This limits taxpayers' ability to force a judicial determination of a preliminary legal issue, such as the domicile question in this case. A preliminary judicial determination can only be achieved through a joint reference to which HMRC would need to agree. Following this canter through the recent developments, you may ask yourself whether any respite is in sight. Well, not all that much. Uh, during the next few weeks, there are plenty of things to look out for. There'll be the replacement revenue and customs brief on the VAT treatment of early termination fees and compensation payments. There's the public consultation on the OECD blueprints for international tax reform, which is scheduled for the 14th and 15th of January and can be viewed on the OECD Web TV. As you'll see, it has not yet made Netflix. The Court of Appeal is scheduled to begin hearing the appeal in the case of Southeastern Power Networks and others on consortium relief and closure notices on 2nd or 3rd of February. 5th of February is the closing date for the consultation on insurance premium tax looking at administration and unfair outcomes. That leaves me to thank you for listening. If you have any questions, please contact Zoe or me or your usual Slaughter and May contact. Further insights from the Slaughter and May Tax Department can be found on the European Tax Blog, 
www.europeantax.blog and you can also follow us on Twitter at SlaughterMayTax. For more information on this topic or to hear our other podcasts, please visit www.slaughterandmay.com. You can also subscribe to the Slaughter and May podcast on iTunes or Google Play.